Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. This is episode three of The Buy Side, our series of conversations with senior brand marketers about sport and sponsorship. Today, we talk about life at the top end of the global sports market with Stephen Day, Vice President of Sponsorship for Visa in Europe. The Visa brand has become part and parcel of the matchday experience for millions of people around the world. The company's partnership strategy includes long-term deals with the biggest event rights holders in the business, from the Olympics, Paralympics, FIFA World Cup and the NFL. Most recently, Visa became the first ever UEFA sponsor dedicated to women's football, following the unbundling of sponsorship rights from the men's game. Stephen Day's background in sports marketing includes stints in charge of sponsorship programmes at Guinness, RBS and NatWest, covering events such as the Rugby World Cup and Six Nations, and properties including the England cricket teams. So we talk about sports role under Fred the Shred Goodwin, the tyrannical former RBS boss, and the unlikely role of Paul Gascoigne as brand ambassador for Calibre, the non-alcoholic lager brand. And we go deep into the commercial value of women's sport and the future of the payment card category as we move towards a cashless future in sport. If you enjoy our podcasts, you should sign up to the weekly unofficial newsletter where we go into greater depth on the topics and themes discussed. Head over to unofficialpartner.com to register. In the meantime, here's Steve Day. Thanks for coming on, Steve. I want to talk about Visa and I want to talk about women's sport. But before we get to that point, you've got a CV that takes in some of the biggest sort of categories in sports sponsorship so if we go yeah. back you've got guinness i see rbs natwest yeah before you before we then get to visa can we just go back to the to the start when was yeah. the first sort of what was your entry into sports marketing or sport as a sort of marketing platform it was probably it was probably when i was at guinness um when i was I was marketing manager for Calibre when I first went there, the alcohol-free lager. Oh, yeah, I remember that. We used to sponsor British touring cars. Um, did some sponsorship with Billy Connolly and everything. But actually, I, I was part of the, if you remember, the England Players Pool with First Artist Corporation, John Smith. Yes. Um, so Calibre, Calibre, Mars and Coca-Cola were the three initial brands as part of that England Players Pool. So that was probably my first introduction to sports sponsorship what was the players pool just just for those of us don't i can sort of vaguely remember it yeah it was effectively a way of um being able to associate your brand with the england football team the england men's football team so it was outside of the games so you they used to do photo sessions appearances etc um on behalf of those brands um, what ha- what happened was that you know first artist um, they they negotiated you know all these deals these you know, shoots with people you know Paul Gascoigne wearing a caliber t shirt and things like that that would appear in you know in the sun and the Daily Mirror and everything and and then I think suddenly people the, the perfect the perfect non alcohol brand ambassador yeah ex- exactly exactly <laughs> so um, you know. And it was a great way for those brands to get brand exposure, actually. Um, I think there was then a realisation that actually this is a very good deal and these brands are getting a lot of coverage for a relatively um, small amount of money. 
Um, so they, they worked out they were giving too much away, did they initially? I, I, th- I think so. So that that sort of that evolved over time. But I think it was probably the first. Um, I think it was the first introduction um, into sort of getting access to to the England football team. Um, I think Phil Carling was around at the time at the FA when that happened. Yes. Um, and I know that you spoke to Phil a few weeks ago, didn't you? Um, yeah, he was there. Um, so this would have been. This would have been early nineties. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, about 90, maybe about 94, something like that, 93, 94. Sort of running into was, Euro 96, I suppose. It was before then. So it was when Graham Taylor was the manager. Was that was that early 90s? Yeah. Yeah, he left yeah. 90 after 94, didn't he? The year, yeah. The, he didn't qualify for the World Cup in 94, is that right? That's right. <laughs> that, that that's was, the, that's yeah, the famous that, video, isn't it? The Dutch, Dutch game. That's right. That was when everybody became Irish, yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so it was probably ninety two to ninety four um, that that period of time. So that was probably my first introduction, and then and then at Guinness, uh, I went on to work on the Black Stuff um, as part of the global team, and that's when I ran Rugby World Cup uh, sponsorship in nineteen ninety nine. So that was probably the the first major sponsorship uh, was Rugby World Cup in nineteen ninety nine. And is that how Guinness work? Young marketers, they they don't let you near the black stuff until you run a you run <laughs> no, something on the on the sides. No, no, no. It was just it was just that my my entry into the Guinness organisation was um, was working on Calibre because I'd actually worked. I came from Bass. I'd worked at Bass beforehand, and I'd been working on a range of brands, in, including some of the alcohol free brands. Um, and um, yeah, it was just one of those happy coincidences that. <clears throat> An opportunity arose, and um, yeah, I, I, went, I went to work for Guinness on, on Calibre, and then um, in, in the UK business, and then worked on the Black Stuff in the UK business, and then moved globally. Um, still based out of London, but worked globally um, on on Guinness, and uh, sponsorship became one of my responsibilities. So it was the Rugby World Cup. It was Rugby World Rugby World Cup ninety nine. Yeah, so um, which was. It was the first time, actually, that Guinness had done a global sponsorship. So they'd been involved in rugby a little bit beforehand. Uh, they'd sponsored London Irish, so literally, um, you know, putting the logo on the shirt. But uh, that was the first global sponsorship deal that um, Guinness decided to do. And and yeah, I, I, I ran that on behalf of the company. Um, very very successful. Um, it was awarded sponsorship of the year, the Hollis um sponsorship awards um and really i mean you only got to look now at what guinness are doing in rugby but it all really started from from that time in 99 and and worked with a number of really really good sort of ambassadors people like francois pinar um who had been the captain in south africa um you know the famous um picture with mandela etc in 95 and he became the um, the Guinness ambassador, the major Guinness ambassador for '99 Rugby World Cup. There's a, I mean, one of the, the things I remember, and this is the '91 World Cup, which would have been in the in England, was the was the sort of because you got Heineken in rugby and and around the what was the IRB and then yeah. now World Rugby, and then Guinness, Guinness was sort of well, Guinness ambushed '91 effect, effectively, didn't they? I know it was before your time. But. Um, well, I mean, there was always a natural affinity 
uh, for Guinness with rugby anyway. I mean, you've only got to go to Twickenham um, yeah. on a match day. And, um, so there was always that natural affinity, um, but they'd never really invested in sponsorship of the sport. And, uh, and yeah, they decided to do that um, for the 99 World Cup and uh, took the beer category away from Heineken. What's the the difference between is the is the we all have a sort of idea of the rugby fan and it's a sort of cliche I'm English I've got a view of rugby fans the Twickenham sort of uh fan and then it will probably change around the the six nations but is the cliche true when you look at the sort of what do you, I just wondered what you learned about rugby fans when you were in that world um I, I think it's it's just a very sociable sport. And, you know, Guinness is a, a very sociable drink. Um, it was all, it's all about, you know, getting together uh, with groups of friends, etc. So you learn that, you know, it's a natural thing to do. I think with, with any, any sponsorship, if there's a natural fit, if people understand that it's not just a brand trying to associate itself with a popular sport, then you get far more acceptance. And there's a natural fit uh, between drinking Guinness and going to see rugby and, you know, enjoying, enjoying that with your friends. So that's, that's why I think it worked really well. And it's continued to work well for Guinness. Yeah. Um, I guess the question then is, when you then moved to RBS NatWest, yeah. in terms of building that relationship, that's obviously harder you know, Guinness I get as a drink, um, as a as a beer, beer and rugby, um, banking and rugby. It's going to be harder. Banking and cricket more difficult. How do you go about approaching that challenge? Well, I suppose my 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 role at RBS was yeah, I was head of brand for Nat West. Um, so when I moved in there, there'd been in existence the cricket sponsorship. I'd uh, been there for a long time, um, and I think. The success of the, the NatWest Cricket Association was they were always adding something to the sport. So um, they, their funds, their support was really developing programs for you know, youth development, etc. Um, that, that was benefiting people coming into the sport. Um, so it's not as natural a fit, but it... Um, it made sense, and there, there was heritage there because I think with any with any sponsorship, it makes sense if you if you're going to be doing sponsorship, do it for the long term. Um, and Nat Western Cricket had been run, God knows how many years it, it did run, um, but um, it had been there for a long time, and I think that ongoing commitment really permeated, and and so the the audience could see that you know there was there was a, a reason for for Nat West being involved in cricket. Um, the, the rugby and RBS, I mean, in truth, if truth be told, um, that was a, an opportunity that arose, I think, um, because I think, I think Lloyd's had been a sponsor mm. of, the, of the Five Nations. Yeah, it would have been the Five Nations then, and then it moved to the Six Nations. And I think RBS just saw that as an opportunity, really, um, to take something um, that had been with um, a competitor, um, and try and try and take some ownership for it. Um, that then developed uh, over the subsequent twenty years or so. Uh, but at the start, it was more more of an opportunist 
um, opp uh, opportunist move by by RBS to to take something away from from one of the competitors. I think. So, I mean, one of the, so RBS is an interesting brand for lots of different reasons. But mm. at that time, you've got a sort of it's a you know obviously a Scottish brand in its its heritage, and then it moved to being okay. This is under you know you've got the whole Fred the Shred Goodwin story running yeah. in here and you've also got the you know when you look at that from a brand perspective presumably that's a an attempt to be a global bank and a global brand it was that was that at the center of is that i mean obviously the sort of sponsorship plays quite a strong role in that that story doesn't it yeah um and and i was there at that time um with fred goodwin so you know the NatWest acquisition was was really his baby with you know as you said, this this small Scottish bank really um, acquiring a major UK bank in that West, and and so when I worked on on that West, you know, every everything to do with the NatWest brand, uh, Fred Goodwin felt personally um, involved in, and um, he was very very involved in every decision taken. Um, in terms of RBS at that time, they were they were trying to develop this RBS group. Um, which included the likes of NatWest. And so the, the Six Nations sponsorship really was part of um, a strategy to, to develop um, the RBS group, um, which is a very, very difficult thing to do, I think, uh, from a sponsorship, because it, it wasn't necessarily a consumer brand. Um, um, so I think, I think there, were, there were a number of strategies and a number of reasons for, for RBS wanting to go into rugby. Uh, but it was really all around that time of really trying to to move the RBS brand and group brand away from where it had been into a a multinational banking organisation. Um, it's interesting the Goodwin thing because obviously when you talk that this this is a thing that go this is a, a bit of sponsorship sort of folklore that veers between um, you've got the sort of the famous buy-in from the top, you know, people say, well, if you need to, if you're going to sell a multi-million quid sponsorship, you need to get the person at the top of the organization invested yeah. in this and have that backing. So you're not selling up within the organization. You've got that from the, from the top yeah. down. And then you've got the other story, which is obviously the chairman's whim story, which again is part of sponsorship folklore and saying, well, you know, Oh, it was just, he liked rugby or he likes sailing or he likes, you know, cricket or whatever. So again, sponsorship tends to get personalized, particularly these big deals. And they quite often get personalized around the people at the top. And we've seen that happen, you know, many times over the years. What was, was that, what was the case with Goodwin? What was it? Was he just in, interested in the marketing bit or did he, I mean, he loved formula one. He, so that was, that was one story that he liked formula one and they, therefore he went, they went, you went into that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he was a very strong character, obviously he had a lot of influence over a lot of the decision-making um, in the group at the time. Um, I think on the rugby side, I think it was more of a, it was a tactical opportunity to really make a statement um, against competitors and to make a statement about internationalizing the brand. So I'd, I'd say it was more, it, it wasn't a personal whim in terms of sport at that time. It was a, a very definite strategic opportunity um, to, to try and move the RBS brand forward. 
What was it like going and presenting opportunities to Goodwin? <laughs> What's he? <laughs> I I I always found him okay. Um, I mean, literally everything everything that everything that I had to produce, he had to sign off because he had such an involvement in NatWest. Um, he was incredibly strong. He was incredibly honest, but you knew where you stood. You knew exactly where you stood. Um, and there's nothing worse than actually not really knowing what the clear direction is. Um, he certainly gave very, very clear direction on everything. Um, so I, 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 never, I never really had any problems with that. Um, it, it, other, some others struggled um, in that environment, but um, at least you knew where you stood. Okay, so um, Visa, obviously we're now in uh, very top-end global sort of territory here. What, I mean, today, mm-hmm. what's the portfolio when you look across the sort of, when you're looking at sport and sponsorship? Um, the creme de la creme. Um, so Visa sponsor uh, the Olympics, Paralympics, uh, all FIFA tournaments, um, NFL, and uh, for the past couple of years, um, UEFA women's football. Um, so um, a couple of years ago, we we signed the deal with women's football, but the very sort of cream of of um, sports sponsorship. And um, I mean, I, I often get asked, you know, what why do Visa spend so much um, of their their funds on acquiring sponsorship properties? Um, and I think there's there's probably there's probably two main reasons. There's a there's a B to C reason, and there's a B to B reason. So in terms of B to C, um, payments aren't aren't normally something that people think about on a day-to-day basis. I, mean, I think more recently that's probably changed and people are thinking about paying contactless or um, online, et cetera. But historically, people have not been thinking about how they pay. It's just, you know, I want to buy something. When you can then associate the Visa brand with a passion point that people have, so something like the Olympics, something like the FIFA World Cup, et cetera, that gets much more cut through in terms of messaging and people are far more attuned to what you're saying. So, you know, history shows that anything that we have done at Visa that's um, associated with Olympics or associated with FIFA World Cup, et cetera, they're always the most popular and the most productive uh, promotional activity, advertising activities that we do. Um, So there's a a very good relevant B2C um, reason for Visa acquiring those. But on the B2B side, in any of those sponsorships, Visa negotiates pass-through rights. So we pass through the rights to the Olympics logos, the rights to the use of the Olympics, to FIFA logos, etc. We pass the, those through to, to all our clients. Um, so all our banking clients around the world, all our merchant clients, where there isn't a merchant conflict with another sponsor, um, we can pass through those rights. And that is hugely beneficial. Uh, for our clients uh, to be able to to use those properties, so so there's there's a good business building reason and there's a good consumer uh, reason as well. It's interesting you talk about the the, the contactless thing because one of mm. the when if you look at the Olympics for example, um, I said this to Timo Lume the other day that the um, I w- I went to London 2012 with a Mastercard <laughs> and it was you know it was like I, I it was like I was 
in another sort of I, I was I wasn't allowed to buy anything. Um, I know that wasn't strictly true, but what's how do you feel that that incredible category category exclusivity that Visa has? You know mm-hmm. that that it, it's so dominant around the events. What what is there a downside to that in terms of just sentiment towards the brand? Well, I think I think we've just got to be very careful about how we how we treat the the fan experience. So we always on on anything where there would be exclusive rights, we always offer the opportunity for somebody to be able to purchase if they happen to go with a competitor product. So there's always a a non visa cardholder solution uh, at all these major events. Um, so people can either pay with cash or they can they can uh, have another solution which allows them to to pay with a, a prepaid visa card or something like that. So we will always be very very conscious of providing fans with a a very seamless and easy solution if they happen to turn up with an all visa product. I just don't use cash anymore. So no. and obviously it's it's via I've got an iPhone. I go and I just pay for everything on the phone virtually. Um, yeah. Where are we going with this, and what does that mean for the Visa brand? Well, I mean, if you if you have a look at you know who who are who are the major competitors to Visa, it's not the usual suspects. It's cash. Um, cash is the major competitor to Visa. So that whole movement to a cashless environment, to using contactless, to using your mobile phone, etc. That is that is the future, and that is what is going to happen, and that is hugely beneficial for a brand like Visa. Um, and you know, been exacerbated over the past eight or nine months, um, where you know contactless usage has increased greatly. You know, lots of retailers do not accept cash anymore. Uh, people purchasing online, etc. So, in terms of the future of payments. That that is the future, and that that is where Visa has a huge advantage. Um, so so yeah. Um, in terms of sport, um, then the whole cashless stadia environment is something that is growing and growing as well. Uh, people can see the benefits of of the cashless environment, both from a commercial opportunity. And you want to go look at somebody like Tottenham Hotspur um, for for what they've done and. Commercially, it makes. A you're, you're just saying that because you know that I'm a Spurs fan. I know, but I'll oh, let no. you know that. Oh no, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they. I suppose they're the ultimate example um, of of going cashless, completely cashless. Uh, but many, many clubs are following. Um, and does and that does that bigger. shape your the, the behaviour of the rights holder in relation to that? So obviously, you know, you, you know, you're right. The Spurs Stadium is a good example. Yeah. Um, but when you're looking at these major rights holders. Is there now a need for them to show you some movement on this in terms of, of how your customers will experience the sport in, you know, when we all get back into Stadia yeah. um, or even virtually? Is that, is that a factor in the negotiations? Yes, it's a, it's a, major, it's a major development um, and something that is going to grow and grow and grow. Um, I think there'll be some announcements very, very shortly about um, what is going to happen uh, in terms of a cashless environment in, at sporting occasions. Um, so, so watch this space. Um, mm. But it's a, it's a, that was a tease, yes. 
Yeah, well, um, yeah, very, yeah very nicely yeah. done. So, um, no, th- that, that, is, that is the future. Um, and, I mean, it's, and it's not only from a, a commercial sense. I mean, it does make sense financially. But from a health and safety point of view, um, I mean, we've, we've done lots of research on this, obviously. And fans don't want to use cash from, you know, from handling cash. They don't want to handle that. And likewise, people that work in Stadia, people that work um, at all the food and beverage um, concessions, et cetera, you know, they don't want to be handling all this cash. They, they much prefer a, a cashless environment with everything paid on card or on a mobile phone. So I think that is, that is the future. Uh, and I think the past, it, it was moving that way anyway. The past few months have just exacerbated that trend anyway. And um, I think there'll be a lot more movement in the, in the coming couple of years. And in terms of the, the is it possible to separate? Because obviously within sport and within sports marketing and in the bubble of the sports business sort of conversation, we, we look at rights fees and we look at, you know, how much a certain brand is spending in the sponsorship market. And we can, you know, you've got the, the lists and obviously Visa is a substantial player in sports marketing. But could you just put it into context in terms of its overall marketing and media spend? How big is sport in, in that context? Sport is huge um, because... As, as I mentioned before, it's it's one of those passion points. You know, people are very passionate about sport, so you know that's why brands involved in sport, you know, they, they can tap into that passion that a fan has. So it will always be very very important. But you know, there's there's other there's other reasons there's other reasons as well for for sponsoring. I think a good a good example is what what we have done with UEFA on women's football um, mm. because, you know, all those other sponsorships that I, I mentioned, the Olympics, FIFA, NFL, et cetera, you know, I gave you the rationale for, you know, why from a B2C and a B2B point of view that Visa would be sponsoring those. UEFA women's football was very, very, very different. That, that is really about the purpose of the Visa brand. Um, I mean, the Visa brand stand you know the dna of the visa brand is all about it's for everybody everywhere it's about acceptance inclusion equality um and those tap in directly to what women's football is all about so our reason for getting involved in ua for women's football was different it was all about having that brand purpose and recognizing that we could make a difference as a brand if we invested behind women's football because we we've done a lot of strategic work. I suppose it must have been mid mid part of 2018 when we were preparing for the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2019, um, and we we came across these insights that really you know w- women's football was caught in this vicious cycle of you know there wasn't enough investment, therefore you know it wasn't getting the coverage, it wasn't getting the crowds. Um, there weren't players being developed, et cetera. So it was just caught in this vicious cycle, which was not taking the game forward as quickly as it could have been. So we, we made a strategic decision that we wanted to break that cycle and we wanted to go and invest behind women's football because we felt we could make a difference um, and really sort of change the sport. And at that time, 
UEFA were looking to decouple their men's and women's rights. So, um, so yeah, we became the first sponsor to support women's football with UEFA when they decoupled from um, the men's and women's rights at the back end of 2018. Let's talk about decoupling because it's, yeah. it's a really interesting sort of initiative, but it's also something that you're seeing across the board with there's a, you know, at a, sh- a club shirt level, there is some decoupling happening and obviously then up to tournament and event uh, rights. But on a practical level, what does it mean? What's the advantage to you and what are the implications of it from the rights holders perspective? Well, I think if, if you take, if you take the UEFA example, UEFA used to sell men's and women's rights as one package. And what, what used to happen really with, with, with all their sponsors was the sponsors were buying the men's rights and the women's rights were being thrown in as a add-on but those brands were not necessarily thinking about how they can help grow the women's game what they can provide in terms of support for the women's game it was it was just an add-on to their men's rights when UEFA decided to decouple we made that pledge to UEFA that actually we we were really we were only interested in the women's rights because we wanted to help them grow the women's game because it tied into a much much broader agenda that we have within Visa about equality inclusion and acceptance um, and you know, women's sport women's football is part of that but it's part of a much broader agenda of driving equality and acceptance in society um, and women's football became a perfect platform for us to be able to do that. So there was a logic, st- logical, strategic reason for us getting involved. Um, but from the rights holders' point of view, it was that they were not getting UEFA were not getting the support from brands to grow the women's game that they had the vision themselves. So they were looking for partners um, who were committed to grow the women's game. Um, it was it was actually it was probably the easiest sell i've ever had for a sponsorship property internally um it actually it all started from i had a com- i i had i went to the soccer x exhibition at chelsea back in 2018 had a conversation with a guy called peter willems from uefa um on a thursday and said you know visa are really interested in just taking the the women's rights Literally nine o'clock the following morning, I met with their agency, TRM, so with Leo Thompson, uh, mm-hmm. Annie Panther. Had a conversation with them nine o'clock on the Friday. On the Monday morning, they came into Visa, had a conversation with my boss. And by the Friday of that week, we had a deal agreed, signed off by the global chief exec. Um, had been through all the all the internal shenanigans that you have to do, um, but um, but it was an easy sell. And yes, it was. We had to go through the you know this is going to be the returns etc. But we we knew that we were investing ahead of the curve. It was just felt by everybody to be the right thing to do, because it was so what the game needed, and it was true to what the Visa brand stands for and is all about which is about acceptance and inclusion. Um, so it became a very easy sell, but 
looking back on it now, literally it took a week, that's all, to get from initial conversation to sign off by the global CEO. Um, and that never happens, um, as I'm sure you've, you realise from your various conversations. That doesn't happen in big companies. But what, What's normally the lead time? <laughs> months. Um, months of backwards and forwards and justifications um, and uh, modelling, et cetera. But, um, but no, because this was felt to be strategically and morally and ethically the right thing to do and where the Visa brand could make a real difference, um, it became an easy selling. It's interesting when you're talking about women and UEFA and the, and the women's game, because I associate Visa with very, you know, the, the business objectives, making money from sports rights. The return on investment is a very commercial decision. It's credit cards, it's payment systems, and you can model that, I can imagine, very clearly. Where it comes to this, you're talking, the words that you're using are, are purpose and emotion, and, you know, you can see the opportunity and it's the right thing to do. So within that, the decision-making process skewed more towards heart than head. Would that be true? Is that that you're looking here at a different framing of of why you would do this? And this is a brand purpose play over a commercial one. Definitely, definitely. And which is why, you know, you you could say, you know, with with a sponsorship portfolio of Olympics, FIFA World Cup, all FIFA tournaments, NFL, you know, did, did Visa need another sports sponsorship? Um, UEFA Women's Football was a yes, because it wasn't the same as those other sponsorships. There was a different reason for doing it. And yes, it is all about demonstrating our brand purpose. And, and also, if I go back to what I said about, you know, the reasons, the B2B reason why we um, purchase sponsorships, you know, every company, every one of our clients is struggling with these same issues about how do they look at equality and inclusion within their organization. And, you know, it's a difficult subject for them to get hold of. What women's football gives them is a platform to be able to talk about those issues, but in a very emotive and engaging way. So it's become a very popular pass-through uh, sponsorship as well, because it's enabled our clients to be able to talk about issues that you know historically they haven't talked about either. But everybody wants to talk about within their organisation. Um, so, so yeah, it's a there's a different different reasons for sponsoring UEFA Women's Football to to our other sponsorships. There's a going back to the the, the points about contactless payment, the future, you know, a cashless mm-hmm. society, and all of those those elements. Um, I guess wait, as you as I sort of listen to you, the the issue of differentiation comes into play here because I don't know or I can't remember when I put my phone on to tap in uh, to the shop whether I'm paying you know what who's paying and I don't really care. Yeah. Um, and actually, the worry from Visa's perspective, presumably from a marketing perspective, is that more people don't care about where the where the, what's driving the, the, the technology. It's just as long as it works, um, that's fine. That's a marketing problem, though, isn't it, for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean that, that's the future. As, as payment moves more invisible, um, 
how do you ensure that your brand is still salient? Um, and that's the, the marketing challenge that we have. Um, and something that we're very, very conscious of. Um, the, and going back to that B2B element, you know, if, if you're, you're not even thinking about how you're paying, what you're paying, you're just paying with whatever bank relationship you have, um, there's a very important B2B element, which is we ensure as Visa that your bank is using Visa because of good logical business reasons and access to sponsored properties like FIFA, Olympics and UEFA. Um, so um, that's part of a strategy to, to mitigate against a, an increasingly um, invisible payment um, methodology in future. So the, the, the brand purpose element is becoming increasingly important, is your point. So v, if, you can, if you can attach a, bra- a purpose to the Visa brand via women's football, and um, that becomes the, the driver of it, it, beca- it feels like a less rational approach. It feels like more like a sort of, you, you know, that balance. There's always tangibles and intangibles at play when you're looking at sport and sponsorship but it feels like the intangibles are are building um in this argument yeah i mean i mean the visa mission is all about connecting the world and enabling individuals businesses and economies to thrive you know that's what we're about um but there are purpose driven elements to that um you know we are for everyone everywhere as i said so um we have to offer solutions that um that tie into that if i'm a rights holder listening to this conversation i'm thinking okay well we need to go to visa with a strong purpose mm-hmm. um it worked for uefa and it they did it in a week and it takes me months and months and months to try and get answers based on my sort of spreadsheet arguments for return on investment do you think that that there will be a tendency to say, okay, well, how do we now approach Visa with opportunities? How no. is that going to change? I don't think so. I mean, there's got to be a portfolio approach. So, you know, there, there will be those properties that are very much about driving the business. Um, and, you know, the data will drive that, those decisions. Um, but as I said, you know, there are other parts of the portfolio that, that talk more towards purpose. And it's about having a balance uh, within your portfolio um, to drive all your business objectives, all your brand objectives. Um, so it's, it's a horses for courses. And um, I think those rights holders know what their properties are about and, you know, why, you know, why people should tap into them. Um, I mean, we've, we, we, we get approached by many, many companies all the time, and I have to evaluate lots of sponsorship opportunities. Um, some of those are evaluated based on reach, frequency, payback, et cetera. Others on, on more purpose-driven um, measures. It, it depends. Let's talk about women's sport generally then, because this is obviously, you know, the visa announcement it was much heralded and quite rightly, it was a great moment. And people say, okay, well, this is, look, this is a sign that women's that brands are taking women's sport seriously. And the, the, when you dig below that, what you're saying is that the signal of women's sport is very important and very useful. Is it also important that the substance is evolving 
as well in terms of you know those tangible elements that eyeballs on the on the you know and the the attendances and all of the things that you buy into on the other side of the uh, portfolio yeah that has to be in place as well. You can't just sustain on it has the to signal. And, and, and taking women's football as the example, you know, we knew, you know, we, we signed this seven-year deal with UEFA. We knew that we were investing ahead of the curve. Um, we knew that the eyeballs weren't necessarily there at the time, but that they would be. Um, so we, we know how... You know, we believe the sport is going to grow, uh, and you've only got to look at some of the evidence from the past couple of years. Um, it is growing; it will continue to grow. We wanted to be part of the solution as well for helping that grow. So um, we knew that we we're investing ahead of the curve. Um, but you know, the longer this relationship goes on, as well as the brand purpose elements, then you know it will also be evaluated against the the traditional methods of sponsorship evaluation. You work with a number of sports marketing agencies over the years. Mm-hmm. What What's the difference between a good one and a bad one? Ooh, that's a good question. I think it's those those agencies that, that believe in what you're trying to do. Um, so I, I've had a number of very, very good relationships over the years. I remember um, at Guinness, uh, when we did uh, Rugby World Cup, I worked with Octagon, Paul Vaughan. Paul Vaughan was my um, mm-hmm. head guy on, at Octagon at the time. And Paul was, you know, he was passionate about what we were trying to do. Uh, and it was, it was a partnership. It wasn't a, you know, an agency supplier relationship. It was a partnership. Um, likewise, uh, now my agency is 160 over 90. Uh, and I have people that's there. IMGs uh, yeah yeah uh, part of I they they change their name every every couple of months to, to keep us on our toes <laughs> um but um yeah no, our team there are again passionate about what we're trying to do um Robin Clark I'll give him a shout out is um is a guy who who knows his stuff and believes in what we're trying to do so I think working together as a partnership um is always going to be the, the success criteria. Okay. Well, listen, Steve, thanks very much for your time. I really, really enjoyed that. And uh, good luck with the, the you, you must be, what, what happens now that we're not going to events? What do you do? Because you're, you're, presumably your working life does revolve around the sports calendar to an extent, does it? It does, to a certain extent. We are looking at other ways of activating sponsorships, be they more virtual um, than physical um attendance at events so lots and lots of of ways of looking at uh, more virtual activation of sports um and obviously the calendar has changed a lot um so tokyo olympics is now a year later than we thought Uh, women's euro is a year later than we thought so it gives us more opportunity to to develop alternative solutions if you like but with people not traveling or in attendance we have to look at different ways of um, of really uh, utilizing the properties, and how how just on that, how do you start to sort of fill that gap? Um, you you try and you try and look at from a, a consumer and a client point of view. You know what is it that they're looking for, and try and tap into those insights about how they want to interact with sporting events in the future. So, I think that the days of 
people traveling halfway around the world to go to a sporting event are probably past. There will still be an element of that, but the traditional ways of, you know, use your visa card, win a trip to the Olympics is not necessarily the way to go. Um, people are looking to activate with the sports in different ways, be that through individuals, access to athletes, um, or, you know, in, in more um, local events that, that tap into the property rather than having to travel around the world. Um, but I think this year has shown that we need to be very flexible, fluid, um, adaptive in what we're doing. And I think that's going to continue into, into 2021. Do you think it will make big top end sponsors like Visa look at sport differently if this continues? I think we have to look at it. I think we have to pivot, uh, to, to use a, a word that gets much use these days, um, in how, in how we use those properties. Um, and it, I think it would be foolish of us not to, to look at different ways of activating. Is sport still going to be um, important? Of course it is. Um, people desperately, even more so now than ever, they desperately want sport to be part of their lives. Uh, it's just how we can bring that to them and how we can get them to to um, interact with it that's, uh, that's changing a little. Okay. Well, good luck and have a great rest of the year and uh, keep safe. Great. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, <laughs> Richard.